Turn to Luke chapter 3 this morning. Luke chapter 3. Um, so far, we have um, covered the infancy narratives of both uh, John and Jesus. And right off the bat, Luke makes it pretty clear that these two are going to have a pivotal role in the unpacking of the gospel story. And uh, now today, actually, we begin kind of a new section in Luke. Um, It'll be in two lessons today and next week. Uh, It'll carry from chapter 3 and verse 1 all the way through chapter 4 and verse 13. So we'll do this in two two Wednesdays. Um, You just have the first lesson outlined, so there'll be another one next week. But this uh, section deals with the ministry of John the Baptist and the preparation for ministry for Jesus. Um, So that takes us through his temptation in chapter 4. So in in these two lessons, today and next week, um, we're going to give today an overview of the ministry of John the Baptist and his preaching and how people reacted to it. And then next week, uh, we're going to look at Jesus' baptism, which was really where he got his divine endorsement from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus, which gives him his credentials to be the Messiah. And we will also look at his temptation, which uh, will focus on his moral character to be the Redeemer of humanity. He was tried in all points like as we yet without sin. So today we're focusing on John the Baptist. Next week will be the preparation of Jesus for ministry, um, his endorsement from the Father, his credentials to be the Messiah, and his temptation, which underscores his his moral character. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about John before we read any of the text. Um, His ministry is in the wilderness, and there's just a little thing I'd kind of like you to, to notice, it kind of echoes um, a wilderness theme of the Jews in the book of Exodus as they are wandering in the wilderness. And, and think about what was happening while they were wandering in the wilderness, God was preparing them to become a new people. He was getting ready for them to get the covenant and go into the land of promise and become the people of God. Because prior to that, uh, they had been, we, we had the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and there was only 70 that started out in Egypt, and they were slaves, and then they come out of slavery into the wilderness, and that is where God forms a new people, in the wilderness, um, or at least prepares them to become a new people. So now we get to the New Testament, and John the Baptist is preparing for a new people of God, followers of Christ, and he too is in the wilderness. So there's kind of that uh, wilderness theme, I guess, that that God uses in preparation for a new people to to be born. Now, when you read about John the Baptist, he's kind of a strange dude, you know, quite honestly. His, his diet, uh, his dress, his behavior, but that seems odd to us. But if you read his history, uh, Josephus, for example, talked about the fact that there were a lot of evangelists that were in the wilderness in that day. It was kind of, uh, people were calling them out to the wilderness to... Uh, expect the Messiah to come at any time, and they were promising renewal. And, and so what John the Baptist was doing was not that weird of a thing. There were other evangelists that did it as well. So his ministry, though it looks odd to us, would not have looked as odd to the people of that day. They were, it, it's, you know, we travel now, there's an evangelist in Timbuktu, and everybody travels to hear him. It's kind of like that same thing. They were, people were going out to hear the evangelist and, and hear what was, was going on. Now, the, the difference was that others uh, were wanting a renewal for the sake of a Messiah to come that would get them out of Roman bondage. That's what they were all promising, that we've got, we're, we're the ones that are going to lead the new renewal and we're going to overturn Rome. But John the Baptist was doing something very different. And uh, his message was something that was, 
was very different. He was a baptizer, as we know. Uh, I always chuckle when I think about this. When Kayla was two years old, she called John the Baptist, John in the bathtub. That's what she always said. So when she heard that story, and, and um, she's almost 30 and still does that. So that's really a little awkward. But um, anyway, his baptism, uh, the baptism of John was a different kind of baptism than what the Jews had known before. They, they did have baptism, they would, but they would wash or dip themselves um, as an act of cleansing. Um, if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, wanted to, to follow the Jewish faith, they would be baptized into that. It would be a rite, but they would dip themselves as kind of an act of cleansing so that they could come into this new community or this new people. Um, the, the Qumran community, I don't know if you've heard of them before, you know, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls um, in an area where the, the Qumran community um, had, had gathered, and they were, they were almost like zealots, Jewish zealots, that were expecting the Messiah to come. And baptism... Baptism was an initiation rite into the Qumran community. So they were kind of used to this idea. But John's baptism was different. They didn't baptize themselves. They didn't dip themselves. Um, They surrendered to him. And he baptized them. And he baptized them unto repentance. He, He preaches repentance. And so he became... Just think about this picture. If I'm baptizing myself... I'm just saying, yes, I'm going to follow this right. But if I submit myself to someone to baptize me, there's an act of surrender in that. And so the baptism that that John was doing was different than they had seen before because he serves as an agent that they are saying, we're going to surrender ourselves to this new cause. All right. So that's kind of what was going on with John the Baptist. Let's read the first six Verses. You, you have a map, I believe, also attached, and we're going to take a look at that. I just want to give you a little bit of a, a geographical understanding. But let's read the first six verses of Luke chapter 3. Um, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. All right, before I read any other verses, I want to just um, kind of give you the, the historical and the geographical setting. Um, Luke mentions in these first two verses the people that are going to play a big role in this story. All right, so that's why I want to spend a few minutes with this. And keep in mind, uh, he's talking to Theophilus. He wants Theophilus to understand the players in this story so he can kind of get his mind wrapped around what is taking place. And he begins by talking about Tiberius, who is in the 15th year of his reign. Now, there's, there's a lot of dispute as to when his first year was. So I can't give you the exact year um, that the 15th year would have been because there are different historical records that date his uh, time a little bit different. But what Tiberius was known for, Tiberius Caesar, was he was known for his last few years. Um, people, historians say that his mental health uh, started to leave him, and he became a terror. He became very um, brutal. Uh, he was a, a, a he was very tyrannical, and so his final years were very brutal years. So he is the one that is the emperor at the time of the birth of Jesus and John. Then there is Pilate, who is the governor or the prefect of Judea. You look at the map, you will see down at the, the, really the bottom, the pink area, that is Judea. That also would be uh, the southern kingdom when the kingdom was divided. That would have been uh, the area that, that uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin would have been. So that's the, that is where 
Um, and you'll notice Jerusalem is in that area. So Pilate is the governor or the prefect um, and he was of Judea, and he was from 26 um, A.D. to about 36 or 37 A.D. Uh, let, let, here's what we know about Pilate. He was known as being inflexible. Uh, he liked things his way. He was relentless. His administration was corrupt. They took bribes. Uh, he was given to outrages where he would just, you know, go on a rant um, he often had people executed without trials. Uh, he stole money, um, set up government uh, robberies. Um, he was not all that sensitive to the Jewish religion. Other governors prior to him had been a little more sensitive to the Jewish faith. He was not known for that. He actually stole money from the temple treasury um, to do one of his uh, building projects and to revamp the water supply. And so the Jews, uh, he took money from the temple treasury to do that. So he had a disregard for the Jews, so they didn't like him, which is one of the reasons why um, he thinks, when he has Jesus and Barabbas, that he can kind of get some good points with the Jews um, because he knows he needs it politically. But, but he has not been very sensitive to the Jews, and obviously Pilate is the one ultimately that calls for the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, another name that's important to the story that John mentions is um, Herod Antipas. He is a tetrarch. That, that word is uh, someone who is a ruler of a region, but he's less than a king. Okay, So there's, there's a Caesar, and there's a king, there's a governor, and there's a tetrarch. A tetrarch is below a king, um, but would have more authority than typically a governor would be. Herod Antipas um, was the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, which would have been 4 BC to 39 AD. Um, Galilee is the green area right here, so he would have been the tetrarch of that area. And then also this kind of orangish area, this is Perea, that would have been just to the east of Judea. So Herod Antipas would have been the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Uh, Perea takes in, um, well, you can see the, the cities that it takes in in that kind of orangish area. Um, he too had overstepped Jewish sensitivities. He built his capital city on top of a graveyard, um, which the Jews said was unclean. So he had really kind of ticked off the Jews. He wasn't a popular um, Jew either. Either Interestingly, the Herods um, actually descended from um, the Edomites, or the tribe, or not the tribe, but the people of Esau. So they were... Uh, they, they were really brothers, uh, if you will, to the Israelites in a sense, Jacob and Esau. So the, the Herod family, um, they almost had a sense that they were kind of Jewish and, and um, they'd gone done their own thing. But there was that connection because they were descendants of Esau. Um, he was loyal to Rome and he was the one who would later imprison and execute John the Baptist and uh, he even had a role, according to Luke, in Luke 23 and Acts 4, in the execution of Jesus. Now, the brother of Antipas, Philip, um, he ruled in a mainly Gentile area um, called Iteria. It's this little light blue section up here. That's where Caesarea Philippi is. That's where... Um, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, that would have been the area that Philip, who was one of those brothers, um, brother of Antipas, and that's where he reigned. Um, and, and he is in the northeast area of, of what was ruled by Herod the Great. Now see, when Herod the Great died, he divided up his area. Philip and Antipas and, and, and the Herodian family began to take over. But he was up in that northeast area, and I th the map actually says the, the Tetrarchy of Philip. So that's the area 
Some cities you hear about Bethsaida in the Bible, and I mentioned Caesarea Philippi. That was the area that he ruled in. Um, this, this area, because it was mostly um, Gentiles, somebody asked about the word Hellenist last week, so I was going to give you a little insight into that. Uh, the, the most Hellenization had taken place in this area since there was very little Jewish influence. And um, the word Hellas is the ancient word for Greece, okay? So, so Hellenization just simply means they were more Greek in their culture, um, in their religion, in their customs. So when, when you read something about Hellenization took place, it just simply means they became more Greek in their culture and, and less Jewish, okay? Th- think about this, for instance. Um, the Greeks were more into philosophy. Um, you know, when Paul says um, the cross was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, um, what he's saying is, to the Jews, it, it made no religious sense. How could their Messiah die on a cross? To the Greeks, who were very much into philosophy, it made no logical sense. They, were, uh, they sought wisdom, and, and it wasn't wise for a leader to die. So, so Hellenization just simply means they were, they were philosophers, they were, their culture was Greek. So that, that's, what we, that's the area, uh, a more Hellenized area that... Uh, Philip would have ruled. And these are all kind of players in the story of Jesus and John the Baptist. And then there is uh, Lysanias, very little known about him. He did reign from uh, 28 uh, or 29 AD to 37 AD. And he ruled, you can see the little orange area right at the top of the page, Tetrarchy of Lysanias. That would have been the area that... So these, those are the names that are mentioned, uh, the rulers. And then there's Anaphas, Annas, not Anaphas. Annas and Caiaphas are mentioned as high priest. Uh, Annas retired in 15 AD. He had five sons and a son-in-law that followed him. Uh, his son-in-law was Joseph Caiaphas. That's the Caiaphas that is mentioned here. He actually was high priest from 18 to 36 or 37 A.D. But behind the scenes, that's what I want you to understand, that's why Annas is mentioned, the real player, the real driving force was Annas. Even though he had retired, he didn't really retire. He was the guy still in charge behind the scenes. He really was pushed, he pushed his five sons and his son-in-law. So Anaphas and Caiaphas are mentioned here. That was the power structure uh, of um, of the day for the Jewish um, high priesthood and the Sanhedrin, all right? So that was the temple machine. It was driven by Annas and Caiaphas. So all of that, just background, go back now to the text, Luke chapter 3, and it's at the end of verse 2. It was during this time when all of those guys were in charge that the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. So, The prophetic word comes to John, and he begins to preach it. The message of John is a message of repentance, um, and that is central to the gospel message. I want you to hold your finger here and uh, turn to Luke 24, um, very end of the gospel, Luke 24, and uh, Luke's version of the Great Commission, Luke 24, and look at verse number 43. Um, he took it and ate in their presence. And he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their 
understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So, John starts preaching repentance, and at the end, Jesus says, when I leave, you need to preach repentance. That's the message. If you want to be part of the kingdom, it begins with with repentance. Now, the Greek word uh, for repentance is metanoia, and it means to change one's mind. That's literally what it means. But the Jewish understanding of repentance meant more than just changing one's mind. You've heard this before. It meant to turn around, to change directions. So when they heard the word repentance, it wasn't just a mind change. It was a directional change as well. So both John and Jesus will make it clear that having a contrite heart that wants to turn around, leave this life, and go this way is what's required to be a follower of Jesus. All right. So John's preaching it. And Jesus will say to his disciples, you've got to preach this repentance. You've got to not only change your mind, but you've got to turn around and go the other direction. So it is a turning of one's back on the old life and a looking forward to the new life that was necessary. So the, the baptism of John, so he's baptizing them unto repentance. This is important. The baptism of John is a one-time preparing one for God's salvation that would come in Jesus. The baptism of John, think about this, would look forward to Jesus coming. When he was baptizing them under repentance, they were looking forward to a Messiah that they were going to engage and come into his community or the people of God. The baptism that we now participate in is a looking back. We are looking back at what we have already done. We have engaged our faith and we have repented. That's why we don't believe in in infant baptism. We believe in believer's baptism because when you're being baptized, you are saying, I have already repented. I have already changed my mind and turned around. And so I have given my life to Christ. John was looking forward to... And the baptism we engage now on this side of the cross, we are looking back to what we have already done. All right? So it is different from Christian baptism. John's was. Um, we look back and we assume that the person already, anybody that we baptize, we ask them, have you accepted Christ? And if they have, the Holy Spirit lives inside of them. So we're looking back knowing that that's what's already happened. John's baptism was looking forward to the Christ that that would come. So those coming to John are contrite. They are being washed and they are being cleansed in preparation for what God will do in Christ. It anticipated the coming indwelling of the Spirit, but it did not celebrate the Spirit having already come. Just to, to prove my point, turn to Acts 19, also written by Luke. Um, this, this will probably make the point better than those statements that I just made. Acts 19, and um, Acts 19, in verse 1, Acts 19, verse 1, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Look, into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on the Christ Jesus. When they heard this... They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. These are people who have already been baptized. 
They've already been baptized into John's baptism, which was anticipating the coming of the Lord. But they've not, even, they've not heard about this other baptism that uh, they didn't even know that the Holy Spirit existed. And so now they get baptized again, only this time not John's baptism, but the baptism that we would be baptized in. This is a baptism of, I'm, I'm coming to Christ. I've, I've given my life to him. I followed him. And then when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied, and the men were about 12 in all. But what I want you to see key here was there were two different baptisms. There was the baptism of John that was looking forward to, and these guys didn't even know about this other baptism, and so he baptizes them as well um, into the Lord Jesus, all right? So you can go back to Luke 3 now. So when these Israelites came to John to be baptized, they were declaring their openness to God and his ways, And now they would have to wait on the promise that was to come. They would have to wait until Jesus showed up to really place their faith in him. Now, the pattern of proclaiming, these are, let me pause there because we're really going to go a little bit different direction. Any comments? Even though I've already read these verses, verse 3 is kind of a cutoff point. Any, Any questions or comments? Anybody? All right, we'll keep going. Then verse 4 now, um, what, what happens here is, um, let, let me read it again. I know I've read it once. As it, is, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is... Um, this is God's way of proclaiming salvation is coming. And what's interesting is um, John is just stepping into uh, a, a role um, of how God's salvation had always been proclaimed. These verses that I just read to you are direct lifts out of Isaiah. I want you to turn to Isaiah. Hold your finger in Luke 3. And I want you to turn back to Isaiah 40, and um, you're going to see these. Isaiah 40, um, he's already quoted verses 1 through 3, but I'm going to read you the first five verses of Isaiah 40. Um, Actually, he quoted 3 through 5. I'm going to read you verses 1, 2, 3 through 5. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Let me just stop there. Does anybody know or want to tell me or tell us what the context, what's going on in Isaiah 40? Who's he talking to? Where are they at? Anybody know? Yeah, Dad? Yes. They are in captivity in Babylon, all right? And they are there because of their sin. But now their time has been served. That's what he says. You've paid double for your sin. And uh, so now I'm, the prophet says, now I've got a word of comfort for you, all right? You've paid for your sin. You've been in Babylonian captivity. Now I've got a word of comfort for you. And verse 3, the prophet says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the flesh shall see it. Together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. All right? Same thing that we read in Luke 3. So what's going on in Isaiah? In Isaiah, they're in captivity. They have been judged for their captivity. They spent their 70 years in captivity. And God is saying, now, here's the prophet saying, you're going to go home. You're going to get to go home. It wasn't going to be long that the Persian king was going to say, if you want to go back, you can go back. This was a prophetic voice saying, salvation is coming back to Judah and they, they go back home and they rebuild the temple. That's the prophet's uh, um, 
Habakkuk, not Habakkuk, I'm sorry. Um, Malachi, yes, Malachi is one of those prophets. Haggai, that's the one I was looking for. I knew it started with an H. Haggai and Malachi prophesied during this time. So Isaiah is just saying the salvation of God is coming. You've, been, you've paid for your sins. So now, think about this. Now John the Baptist uses that same language. And he is saying, I'm announcing salvation is coming. So this has always been God's way. Um, it's, it's now coming in the person of Christ. This pattern then um, speaks to many periods of Israel's history at the same time. In Isaiah's day, it was introducing the second part of Isaiah, which tells of God's salvation for Babylonian exile. And this pattern is now beginning with John. He comes in the spirit of Elijah, the prophet. And uh, let, let's turn to a couple other verses. Look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And um, look at Mark 1, Luke 1, and Malachi 3. Can you grab all of those real quickly? Mark chapter 1. Mark 1. Mark 1 and verse 2. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Look now at Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 and look at verse 16. This is the prophecy about John the Baptist. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, look at this, in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient um, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then go back to the last Old Testament book, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. This is written 400 years before Christ. Malachi 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, saith the Lord of hosts. So, John the Baptist is coming in the spirit of Elijah. The, the prophecy was that there would be, before the Messiah comes, there would be one that would come in the spirit of Elijah, and he would say, I'm the voice, uh, I, I'm the, the mouthpiece. I'm the, the one preparing the way. He would, as a matter of fact, um, when, um, when a king would um, be coming into a city in the ancient east, they would um, send an entourage of people first, and they would clean up. Think about when we have a parade. If, if, if we're going to have a parade in downtown Muncie and some dignitary is going to show up, um, they're going to block off the streets, and they're going to clean the streets, and they might even widen the road. And, um, and, and there's this announcement, somebody important is coming, let's get this ready, all right? That's, they did it then, we do it now. And the promise was, before the Messiah comes, there's going to be a messenger who's going to come and say, prepare the way of the Lord, clean things up. He's going to make every path straight. And the promise was, he would come in the spirit of Elijah. All right? So now John the Baptist is that one. John the Baptist is the one who has come in the spirit of Elijah, was prophesied about him before he was born, and now he comes, and he is declaring, make every path straight, just like we read in Isaiah chapter 40. So he is preparing for the events of salvation. It's like preparing a red carpet entry for a king. And with the entry of Jesus, God would make a way of salvation, again, that would be known to all men. All right? Um, there would be nowhere else to look but to Jesus. Valleys and mountains would be overcome, according to the prophecy. The enemy to God's salvation would be overcome. The other Gospels say that John also announces the coming of the kingdom uh, or God's rule uh, has come near and been present. So let's go back to Luke chapter 3. So John has come. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 40. He's fulfilling Malachi 3. He's coming in the spirit of Elijah. 
And uh, he is baptizing, he is preparing the way for Christ. Now, John chapter 3, or Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him. <laughs> That's a way to make friends. Brood of vipers, uh, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So um, John's language or his challenge is offensive, obviously, to some. Like all the Old Testament prophets, um, he rails against uh, meaningless rituals that show no heart at all. Let me... um, take you to a couple of those. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. This is, again, he's just like these prophets. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1. And let's start in verse number uh, 10. Isaiah 1.10. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. By the way, he's calling the Jews the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how frustrated God is with them. He likens them to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And listen to what he says. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who required this from your hand? To trample my courts. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They're trouble to me. I'm weary. God says, I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I'm not going to hear because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. Then turn over to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. Um, I've read this to you even recently. It feels like the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you Judah who enter in at these gates to worship. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, amend your ways and your doings, and I'll cause you to dwell in this place. But do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you don't oppress the stranger and the fatherless and the widow and you don't shed innocent blood or walk other gods, walk after other gods, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. You're going to steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered to do all of these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Those are pretty tough words that he said to both Isaiah and Jeremiah. The prophet said, God is tired of your religiosity. He's tired of your ritual. He's tired of you saying, oh, we're going to the temple. I mean, Jeremiah said, are you really going to keep coming here after you've done all that all week long and come here and say, we're okay to do this because we're in the temple of the Lord. And in Isaiah, he says, I'm sick of all your stuff. I'm weary of your prayers. You stick your hands out and pray, I'm not even listening because your hearts aren't right, all right? That was what the prophets did, and now that's what John, go back to Luke 3, it's exactly what he's doing. You brood of vipers, he he, he says. Um, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And look at verse 8, 
bear fruits worthy of repentance. And don't say, we have Abraham as our father. Quit using that excuse. Let's see something in your life, John says, that looks like your heart is changing. And John is just like Isaiah. He's just like Jeremiah. And he says to them, you look more like, and by the way, don't miss that, brood of vipers. What are vipers? Snakes. They got that. They knew Genesis 3. They knew what the snake represented. I mean, he's calling them satanic. Your attitudes are satanic. You brood of vipers. Um, and, and he said, you're not true children of Abraham. John is saying, listen to this. John is saying, if you see this baptism like just another ritual that you can perform, it's not going to do you any good. If you're coming out here to dip in the water and you think that that's going to fix you, you've you got another thing coming. So John is, is delivering a hard line here. John undermines the first century Jews' understanding of their relationship to God. This is a, a pretty important point to, to get. E.P. Sanders actually calls this um, covenantal nomism. Nomos, the word nomos is the word law. Nomos, nomos. So um, law or covenant. Uh, Torah is also the word law, but, but nomos um, has a little broader meaning. And so covenantal nomism means that um, the Jew believed because we have the law, because we have the covenant, we're in. That we, we're, we have relationship with God because we have the right heritage. We are Jews. We have the law. We have a heritage. We have the covenant. When you get to Romans chapter 2, you'll read, Paul will say, you ought to know better because you've got the law, you've got the covenant, but you're, you're without excuse, all right? But, but the first century Jew thought, we're good. Everybody else got a problem. You've got to get baptized into our faith, but we're good because we, we've got the covenant. Um, but John undermines that. He says, a good heritage is great, but a good heritage does not secure one's salvation. John says that children of Abraham are not identified by their physical birth into the community. Because, he says, God could make children of Abraham out of these stones. John is saying, do you really think that because you were born of Jewish parents, that makes you children of God? God could raise up his own children right here with these stones. By the way, it, it, it implies a couple of things. Um, Number one, that God wants to raise up more. He wants more. He could do it. But that they're, um, they could be easily replaced by these stones. It shows God's ability and his intent to create a new people. He could even arouse these dead stones and bring life into them. So he issues two warnings. Um, to be saved, you have to be saved from something and then turn away. You have to repent. And again, repentance is not a politically correct word today. I mean, when you tell people that it's not just carrying a card that says, I'm a Christian or I'm a member of a church, but what is really required is not just intellectually saying, I will accept that, but in the accepting of that, I am turning away from that. Okay? It's not a, salvation is not, I hope I get this right, Salvation is not an addition to what we already have. Salvation is a turning of directions, all right? We don't tell people that very often anymore because we're afraid we'll take them off. But, but you, don't, you don't just get saved by adding a little Jesus into a worldly life. You get saved by repentance, which means I turn away from an old life and I start heading toward Christ. It's the same thing then as it is now. And so John is hardcore. John is saying you can dip in that water all you want, but unless there is fruit that looks like repentance, it's not, it's not the real deal. Judgment is imminent. He says the axe has already been laid to the tree. All right, God is already dealing with this, these Jews that think they've got it down. The axe is already laid to the tree and the fire is already burning. Both of those are judgment metaphors. Now, 
Not everybody was offended by John. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of them actually asked John what they need to do. They're saying, what are the fruits of repentance? How do we turn around? Look at verse 10. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? And he answered and he said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. And then soldiers also came to be baptized. And they asked him, saying, and what shall we do? And he said to them, don't intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So he's ticked off some people because he called them a brood of vipers. But other people have said, okay, um, what do we have to do? What does repentance look like? Two groups will ask here in this text, tax collectors and soldiers. Interestingly, when we get to Luke 10.25, a lawyer is going to say, um, what must I do? When we get to Luke 18.18, um, a ruler is going to say, what must I do? And when we get to the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, also written by Luke, they're going to say to Peter, what must we do? All right, so that's a question. There, there is a doing. What must I do? Um, and then there's a jailer in Acts 16.30. Remember when Paul and Silas are praying at midnight and, and God breaks their chains and the jailer runs in and what does he do? He falls down and says, what must I do to be saved? All right, so that question shows up in Luke's writings um, over and over and then it also um, there's a zealous Jew in Acts 22.10 that will ask the same question. The importance here is the, the invitation to redemption, and then God demands a response. So the general audience, verse 10 and 11, the people said, what must we do? And what does he say to them? Um, he just tells them they need to share with those who lack the basic necessities of life. That's, if you want to start, if you want to start, if you've got two tunics, Give to somebody who doesn't have any, all right? John obviously saw the crowd as capable of helping others. And this has been the case throughout Scripture and will always be the case in Luke. Uh, now notice, this is not seen um, as what brings someone into a relationship with God. It's not, okay, if I've got two tunics and I give you one, I'm in. It, it is seen as the manifestation of someone who has come into relationship with God. It's not that my works save me. It's that if I'm saved, I'm going to behave differently. Everybody got that? That's what he's saying. So, so what, is, what is the fruit that shows I've really repented? The fruit is, I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to, I'm going to love people. I'm going to care for people. All right? So we need to consider our own lives and how they line up. Then the tax collectors come. And the tax collectors, that was breeding ground for corruption. I mean, these guys overcharged all the time, and, and they ripped people off, and, 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 and everybody hated them. Remember Zacchaeus, which Luke tells that story, was a tax collector. It's interesting that Jesus, or John, doesn't tell them to leave tax collecting. Just be honest. What do we, what do we have to do? To, to have fruit that shows we've really repented. Start being honest. Don't charge any more than you're supposed to. That's exactly what he says. Let your life, wherever you're planted, wherever you are, let your life show that you really have a relationship with Christ. And then the soldiers, in verse 14, who, by the way, in the, the Roman soldiers um, were only paid in the ancient world enough to just barely get by. So, so they would intimidate people. They would, they would bribe people. You know, well, well, we'll let you go down the road that we're blocking if you'll give us a little extra. Because that's the way that they, they could, you know, pad their wallet a little bit. And so John says, if you want to show that you've really repented, don't intimidate. Don't manipulate anyone anymore. Just do your job. All right? Notice again that before the cross, before Jesus dies... God expected that kind of changed behavior out of them. How much more after the cross 
when the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, does God expect lives that look different after we've come to Christ? No excuse for living the old way. That's what John is saying. God's tired of that. God's tired of you doing the ritual and there not being really any change. And so this whole section is about the change that God expects if we truly are repentant. Let me pause there. Any, I've talked a lot. Any questions? Any comments? You're all quiet today. Anybody? All right. We got pizza ordered in at 5 after 11 or what? Everybody's just shutting up so I can finish. All right. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this is, she just says that this kind of clears up with people who say they're saved, but there's no change in their life. Um, this would be the, the, the pre-cross explanation, but the book of James really is the other side of the cross. James just says, you can tell me you've got faith, but if there aren't any works there, your faith is suspect. And, and so, and again, it's not, it's important. It's not works get us saved. It's that if we're really saved, there are works that follow. It's, you turn around, you change. Yeah, absolutely. It's not an addition. It is a new direction. Yeah, that's really important. All right. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Christian walk is probably like this. And then we turn for a moment and we have to repent and, and, but we're being saved because we are moving towards something and, and away from something else. Yes. Turn toward him, you see him, and you begin to walk toward him and away from something else. That's, that's, the journey is, and that's why we are being saved, the journey is walking toward him. Right? Okay. All right. Any other comments? Yeah. Ron? No, I don't want to hear that. I don't... <laughs> Ron says after he got saved, he said a bad word, and uh, he told the Lord that was the hooping garner in him, and the Lord told him he couldn't use that excuse anymore. So, <laughs> Bev, do you have to tell him he can't use that excuse anymore either? All right, <laughs> all right. Let's uh, look at the verse fifteen. All right. Um, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered saying to all, um, I indeed baptize you with water. One mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. And gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And uh, with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. So the, the people hear him and they reason among themselves, maybe this, maybe this is the Messiah. And John clears that misconception up quickly by making a contrast between himself and Jesus. First of all, he says, the Messiah is superior to me. I'm not even worthy to unloose his shoe or his sandal. Um, John sees himself only as a messenger. 
Um, he sees the Messiah as more powerful. He says their baptisms are distinct. I'm baptizing you with water, looking forward to. Uh, again, it forces a choice to repent, and prayers prepares one for the coming Messiah. But the Messiah will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. All right? Um, Luke 24, I was trying to think if I want to read this or not. I think I'll just quote them to you. Um, Luke 24, 49, we read that just a few minutes ago. Some of Jesus' last words, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Jesus would be the baptizer in the spirit. We get to Acts 2, they're in one place, one accord, and there comes the sound as of a rushing mighty wind, cloven tongues of fire, and it filled the room where they were sitting. Um, and then Acts 1.8, prior to that, I forgot, prior to that, Jesus said, you'll receive dunamis power after um, you receive the Holy Spirit. So John clears up, we're different, I'm not, I don't even, can't even, I can't even unlatch a sandal. Our baptisms are different. Um, he is superior. Um, Jesus is superior because he, this is important, this may be the biggest distinction, because Jesus, not John, can make a distinction between people. Look at verse 17. Speaking, John's talking about Jesus. And he said, his winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is a really important concept. The harvest time, in the harvest time, the wheat and the chaff would get separated. It would get thrown up and they would use a winnowing fork to, to separate the two. John says that is an, an activity of Christ, not him. He said, he, not only can I not unlatch his shoe, and not only are our baptisms different, but it's not up to me who's wheat and who's chaff. That's up to Jesus. He's the one that divides the two, all right? Really important implications for us, right? We don't decide who's in and who's out. We don't decide who's real and who's not. John said, I don't. And only Jesus can. That's a really important concept for us to get. But I will also point to the fact that there is no, you know, universalism is kind of the, the, the thing that everybody is about today. The, the liberal theologies, it's even creeping into what used to be conservative theologies that says ultimately everybody will get saved. You don't see that here. There's going to be some burn the chaff is going to be burned with unquenchable fire. doesn't sound like everybody makes it in, all right? But only Jesus can separate. John is a prophet, and Jesus, though he is a great teacher, a moral example, and a friend of the needy, Jesus is also the judge. He's the one that's going to decide what's wheat and what is chaff. There is no other way. And then with many other things, John exhorted them. The final two verses, and we'll wrap up here, um, verse 19 and 20. By Herod the Tetrarch, but, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut up, that he shut John up in prison. Let's uh, get the backdrop to that story. Go to Matthew 14, just in case you don't know it already. Matthew 14 tells us the story. Um, Luke does not tell it here, um, but it is found in Matthew 14, um, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So Herod's brother Philip had been killed, 
and he had taken his brother's wife. John says, not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But you know the story. When Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias uh, danced before them. She pleased Herod. He promised to give by oath to give her whatever she might ask. And so she was prompted by her mother who said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and the head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. So Matthew 14 uh, kind of fills in the blank of Luke chapter 3. All we get in Luke is that he got arrested. But the after the story is he got arrested and he ultimately got beheaded because he had called out Herod's sin. So as we go back to Luke 3, let's wrap this up. So Luke or John is put in to prison in verse 20. And that will be the end of hearing about John. This is Luke's way of going ahead and getting John off the stage so that he can now focus on Jesus, uh, his baptism, and his, his ministry. So a summary of John's ministry, some would say it was unsuccessful. Um, didn't have a long tenure, but he was faithful. And his consistency, and I just want to end with this, the consistency of John the Baptist was honorable because he didn't just tell the peasant to repent. He told the tax collector and he told the soldier, you've got to change your life too. That's, there's something really honorable and consistent about that ministry that doesn't back down when there are uh, the elites or the prestigious. John knew the same message as across the board. And righteousness will only occur when, no matter who you are, you turn away from the old life and you make a change in direction. Any, um, any questions or comments? We will wrap up this section. Next, next week we'll talk about Baptism, genealogy, and temptation of Jesus. That'll take us through 413. Any, any comments or questions? All right. Have a great afternoon. God bless you.